Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter number 10. It's not necessarily a, a common book of the Bible that we just go to often. Matter of fact, people probably in daily Bible reading try to go as quick as they can through like the first eight chapters of Chronicles with all of the family trees that are show up uh, there, you know. But uh, they're needful and necessary, especially for Jewish heritage. Man, very, very important to them. Amen very important to them where they came from amen and so they're there but we're we're just a little bit beyond all of the family tree stuff in first chronicles chapter number 10 we'll look at verses 13 and 14 and much of the stories that you read in the chronicles have already taken place in samuel and kings as a matter of fact many times when you read samuel and kings it talks about the acts or the rest of a king can be found where in the chronicles in the book of chronicles and Sometimes Chronicles gives us a little bit more detail about maybe a story or some other nugget of truth that we didn't find in, in Samuel or in uh, the book of Kings. But we want to look at it here tonight. Amen. In the house of the Lord. I want to just share something real quick. I don't know why this is going through my mind, but it's just one of those little things that happened while we were gone during the summer preaching here, there, and yon. We were in uh, Nebraska and preaching that camp meeting there. And as I said, services went long and prayer services went long. And that last night, it was just as equally as long as any other night. And, and uh, so they had this long old surface. And it seemed like it was maybe finally panning down. And so they put some canned music in, Brother Andrew, uh, to play at the end just, just from their phone. But it was evidently one of those like Pandora or something that had commercials. And so while it was winding down, here came on a, 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 a Charmin commercial for issue paper. So if it wasn't over, it was shortly after Charmin got done with their advertisement. And uh, it was just one of those just funny things. It, it struck me good enough. I wrote it down. I had a little tablet of paper. I just wrote it down. I said, I cannot forget this for the rest of my life. I got to, I got to remember this, that we ended service on a Charmin uh, jingle. And uh, it's not just anywhere you can go that that happens. But it did there. <laughs> Amen. It did there. And so it was just, I just felt like sharing. My name's Paul McGee, and I just wanted to share with you a funny moment in my life. Amen. So with that, we want to turn to the word of the Lord tonight. That has nothing to do with what I'm about ready to say, but uh, it was there. I didn't want it to trouble me while I was preaching. First Chronicles chapter 10, verse number 13. And 14, listen folks, if it happens, it'll happen in church. First Chronicles 10, verse 13 and 14. The Bible says, so Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. And also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. Verse 14, and inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him. And turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. I hope of the Holy Ghost tonight. Friday morning as I was reading my word. And I happen to be reading in Chronicles right now. And uh, when things hit me, I underline in my right in the margin of my Bible. 
And, uh, and I was reading in the Message Bible, and I will probably share that with you here just a little bit later, the way that it terms verse 13. But I underlined and wrote my Bible, and at that exact moment, Bible reading was over because the Lord wanted to pour some things into me concerning these verses. I feel absolutely that the Lord has helped me for this evening's service. I want to preach to you tonight uh, this message, just two words. Finish strong. Look at your neighbor and tell them that. Finish strong. Finish strong. Finish strong. Can we go to the Lord in prayer right now? Father, I come to you here this evening. God, I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, God, for your people that have gathered together tonight. I pray, oh, Lord, we want to turn our direction and our minds toward heaven, God, for the next few moments. God, let your word become alive, God, to our lives and to our hearts. I pray, oh, Lord, let someone, I pray, God, hear the commission, Lord God, of finishing strong here tonight. I pray, oh, God, each and every believer. God, each and every individual, God, no matter where they are, God, in their walk with life, God, let them, Lord Jesus, God, to take this, Lord Jesus, as a, Lord, challenge and a mantra, Lord God, for their own life, God, to finish strong, Lord, and will not forget, Lord, to thank you, Lord, for what you accomplish in this place. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen. And the church say amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Finish strong. The Olympic Games, Mexico, 1968. The marathon is the final event on the program. The Olympic Stadium is packed. There is excitement as the first athlete, an Ethiopian runner, he enters the stadium. The crowd erupts as he crosses the finish line. Way back in the field is another runner. John Stephen Akwari of Tanzania. He has been eclipsed by the other runners. After 30 kilometers, his head is throbbing. His muscles are aching, and he falls to the ground. He has a serious, serious uh, condition concerning his legs. He has a lot of leg injuries, and the officials want him to retire, but he refuses with his knee bandage, Akwari picks himself up, hobbles the remaining 12 kilometers to the finish line. An hour after the winner has finished, Akwari enters the stadium. All but a few thousand people of the crowd is left. Only a thousand or so had not went home. Akwari moves around the track at a painstakingly slow pace until finally he collapses over the finish line. It is one of the most heroic efforts of Olympic history. And afterward, whenever he was asked by a reporter why he had not dropped out, Akwari says, my country did not send me to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. The apostle Paul told the church at Philippi that he was confident that God, who had begun a good work in them, would perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident of God finishing a work in them and through them. Also, when he was speaking about his minister Titus and the church at Corinth, the Bible says that he desired that as Titus had begun, 
so he would also finish in them, that is in the church at Corinth, the same grace. He desired the same work of grace in the church to be a finished work in them. It's the Apostle Paul who also said concerning his own life that he had fought a good fight and that he had finished, he said, my course. In the past year, I have read a book entitled, entitled Finished. Give Yourself the Gift of Done by John Acuff, if anybody would wish to read it. It was released in 2017, and basically it was built upon this premise that most people that don't finish, it isn't due to laziness, but it's due to perfection tendencies. Earlier in 2013, he wrote a book titled Start. Punch fear in the face. Isn't that great? Punch fear in the face, escape average, and do the work that matters. But between the release of Start, which was 2013, and Finish, which was 2017, he had got a litany of, of, of emails and letters from his readers year after year that was telling him that, bro, we don't have any problem with starting. It's finishing that we usually have problem with. Finishing is our problem. And I'm sure we could take a, a poll right now of this congregation and see how many people around your house have some unfinished product. Projects that's just lingering around How many unfinished books Sitting on the shelf that you started to read But you never finished Oh yeah people's looking at their husbands Husbands are looking at their wives We could take an inventory tonight Of things that you started with great hopes And excitement We're going to do this But finishing has never came Quite about quite yet It may be It may be a framed wall with a piece of drywall on it that's just not quite finished. Maybe a stack of pictures that you're going through, Sister Rhonda was going to organize by year or category, but they just remain to set there over in the corner collecting dust. It may be a wooden table, Sister Dawn. Maybe a wooden table that you picked up alongside the road and you said you're going to refinish it, and it's still sitting in the garage. It's in Super Church right now. It may be perhaps a file of sermons or lessons. I'm going to preach to me. It might be a file of sermons or lessons that I preached or taught from paper. Now I was going to digitize them, Brother Zach. I'm going to type them up and get them in digital form. But that, that file just seems to get thicker and fatter as the days go on. I had great intentions, but I never did finish it. And if we survey our lives, we all, if you be honest with yourself, can discover some things that are unfinished around the house and those are tangible things you know a table to be refinished pictures to be organized tangible projects amen they're much easier to count and to see than dreams or aspirations or intentions that you might have that never made it to paper that can't be tracked in a physical sense but it doesn't mean they're any less there being in your heart or in your soul they're things that we have purposed in our mind or maybe we have shared with another soul that only we are or perhaps some Somebody else is only truly aware of those desires and aspirations we have in our life. And for some of these, these items are no big deal. No big deal. They, they, they may have been at one time a big deal, but they're no longer a big deal. No longer a weighty matter now. For others, though, these things that are in their hearts and minds, dreams and aspirations, they are the very things that haunt them when they lay down to go to sleep at night. Thinking that I had that in my spirit, but I've never followed through with it. Their minds at times are consumed with why they never stopped 
going toward that go or that finish line that they had intended in their heart. How, how could they think maybe even sometimes, how could I even just ever go back and pick back up where I left off and finish? Someone say amen. In our scripture text tonight of 1 Chronicles chapter 10, we read of a character by the name of Saul. Saul has a humble beginning. He is Israel's first king. The Bible says that he stands heads and shoulders among all the rest that are in Israel. He's quite a notable man. When his name is considered for king, the Bible says he's somewhere hiding among the stuff as they're singing his praises. He's through his humility. He's just hiding there, trying to go unseen and uncalled upon, which once again just underscores his humanity. His beginning is the fulfillment of a prophetic utterance. His beginning is the fulfillment of a prophetic utterance he received from the prophet Samuel. In so many words, Samuel spoke into Saul's life and told him, whenever you leave me in this encounter, he said, you will meet a group of prophets and the Spirit of God will come upon you and you will begin to prophesy. In essence, Samuel was saying, you will turn into, he said, you'll turn into another man because God will have given you another heart. And everything that Samuel the prophet spoke into the life of Saul happened just as it was spoken. He came among prophets. He prophesied. The Spirit of God came upon him. He had an experience with God. He, God changed his heart. God changed his mind. And we look back and we think, man, what a beginning for Israel's first king. The Bible says he was extended the throne. And being extended the throne was a privilege for anyone. But particularly for Saul to have the throne extended to him was a special privilege because Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. He is of a tribe that is perhaps lesser in size than all the other 11 tribes. Not only that, it's a privilege for it to be extended to him being of the tribe of Benjamin because somewhere in the past that tribe was almost totally decimated and wiped off the record of history and now that tribe or a person in that tribe is being extended a privilege of being a representative sitting on the throne as a king what an honor what a beginning for a tribe an individual such as Saul the Bible says, speaking of this man Saul, he was very notable. He evidently was successful in the battles that he went out and engaged in. David says in his lament of Saul that Saul, whenever he went out, his sword did not come back empty, meaning that it came back drenched in blood. It came back, amen, and, and, and had the proofs of the purpose for which it went out in battle for. And we think, man, what a great beginning an experience with God a kingship extended to him mighty in battle amen from a less tribe but they're brought from the bottom amen to shine what a great beginning but when we fast forward now to Saul's death in 1st Chronicles 10 there's a different story being told about this man that had an experience with God the Bible says, so Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord. Almost every other Bible version that I read and translation that I read relates it the same, Brother Zach McGee. Saul died for or because of his transgression against 
the Lord. Some of the translations and versions have a little bit of different usage. Amen. Word usage like Saul died because of unfaithfulness to the Lord. The Hebrew word, though, translated transgression in our verse usually supports the idea of faithlessness or treachery. It is an act committed by a person who knows better, but who for selfish motives acts in bad faith. It's the same word that's used to describe the transgression of Achan, who him along with all the rest of Israel were told, do not partake of the accursed things in Joshua 7. Yet he went on and took the Babylonian garment and the wedge of gold and the silver unto himself. He knew better. But he did it anyway for self-advancement. It is a word. Is everybody, it's just, I know I've been throwing a lot of language at you all here lately. I'm not talking about cussing either. Amen. But I, I just <laughs> throw a little language here at you. It is a word that is the combined perfect tense in the Hebrew which denotes an action completed in the past such as not killing all the Amalekites for Saul such as offering sacrifices when that wasn't his position to do so such as seeking out the witch of Endur it was, it was an action that was completed in the past but with the idea that its consequences continue up to the time that the words are stated and the words are uttered. It is an action that results in a state. Might I say a state of disobedience. Someone say amen. Saul died for his transgression. Verse 14 says the Lord slew him. But we understand something very well. We think, man, what is the deal? This unmerciful God, this man makes a mistake and the Lord slews him. But we got to understand the grand picture of things whenever we talk about the Lord slewing a man over a transgression. The reality of the fact is this. Death entered the picture of mankind in the beginning due to transgression. Death entered the very beginning with Adam and Eve and it was all because of transgression. So this isn't the Lord necessarily having an isolated vendetta against a man who made a mistake. But this is the death that's the result of the original sin that comes upon all mankind. I mean, the Apostle Paul is telling us in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about resurrection and he tells us that the sting of death is what? Sin. The sting of death is sin. So every man, whether he's saved, unsaved, of like, all die in reality for transgression. The very transgression that was ever first committed in the garden. And since all men have sinned, I guess we all, to a certain degree, could die because of our transgression. But Saul died for his transgressions. He, because of his transgressions, and this is what I read Friday morning, the Message Bible translated with the actions that he had done in the past resulting in a present day state. It says that Saul died in disobedience. See, in a state. Disobedience. Saul died in disobedience, more particularly it says, disobedience to God. In other words, Saul just didn't die for or because of transgression, but those sins created, helped create and foster a state of disobedience that Saul evidently remained in. 
And therefore, when he died, he died in a state, a condition of disobedience. Someone say amen. But listen to me, the folks. I got, I'm not leaving you in the slums here tonight. But he started, whenever Saul started, he was started, his life was started, his ministry, his kingship, it was all forged by a move of God. When this thing first came upon him and in him, it was all forged by a move of God. He prophesied under the unction of the Spirit of the Lord. He prophesied under the unction of the Holy Ghost. But now the epitaph that's being written upon his life is that a man that started in the Spirit is going to die in disobedience. A man that spoke fluently in a prophetic utterance is now going to die in disobedience. He had a definitive moment, if you will. He had a date. He could circle on the counter that I had an experience with God. But at his final resting place, the verbiage is he died in disobedience. Someone say amen. Because as most do, because as most do, after our initial experience, Saul made some mistakes. Welcome to the club. He made some mistakes. You're going to make some mistakes. We have made some mistakes since the Spirit first came upon us. And we were changed into another man. And God changed our heart. And we've done great exploits for God. Saul made some mistakes. And it's going to happen. But it's when those mistakes create a state. When those, cre those mistakes create a state of disobedience that we choose to stay in. That it becomes very scary and quite different. What I'm trying to tell somebody tonight is this. You can start in the spirit. And you can finish in the spirit. You can start with an unction in he from heaven. And you can finish with an unction from heaven. Don't allow the mistakes from point A to point B trouble, skew, deter how you finish someone say finish strong finish strong Bible tells us the Bible tells us where some of the trouble is in 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 13 and 14 it points out primarily two things in our text. Number one, it points out two things concerning the death of Saul and him being slain and him being in a state of obedient, disobedience. It says Saul basically rebelled. Look at it now. Even against, he transgressed against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. Saul rebelled. Against the word of the Lord. God's word to Saul. Utterly destroy the Amalekites. Saul goes out to battle. He spares the king of the Amalekites. He spares, according to his estimation, the best oxen that they had. The best fatlings that they had. The best lambs that they had. The best livestock that they had. Someone say amen. And his purpose for doing so is that Saul was going to take these animals that he considered to be the best. And he was going to sacrifice them unto God. They wanted to take what he thought was best and give it to God. 
Folks, Saul didn't have to go off of what he thought was best. He already had the first five books of the Old Testament law saying what type of animals were acceptable, what type of what their condition should be in order to be offered into the Lord. And if God said you slay every man, woman, child, livestock, then that must not be something that is acceptable in the eyes of God. So don't you go off what you think is best. You need to stay in line with what God thinks is best. Look what it says. 1 Samuel 15 verse 24. Look at the word of the Lord. This is the scenario here. Of after he has saved King Agag and all these animals that he thought was best. The Bible says, and Saul said unto Samuel. They have a conversation about this. Samuel says, what's that? Uh, you, you, you fully, you fully, you have fully followed the word of the Lord? What's the bleeding of the lamb that I hear and the lowing of the ox that I hear in the background? Yeah. woo Says what you thought was complete is really partial. And partial is really none. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Saul, he admits, look at it. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin. Turn again, he's telling Samuel with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee. For thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Now look at this. Saul admits that he sinned. He asked for pardon. But no pardon is given to him. We're starting to get a little troubled here. Because we read later concerning Israel's second king, King David. After his sin with Bathsheba. That in 2 Samuel 12, whenever Nathan calls him on the carpet, the Bible says that David admits also, I've sinned. Saul admitted he sinned. David is admitting he sinned. And yet whenever David admits that, without saying anything else, without even asking for pardon, Nathan looks at him and says, God hath put away, don't worry, God hath put away your sin. Now what's the deal, Brother Terry? That a man over here can say, I've sinned, please pardon me. And the man of God says no. And then over here another king can say, I've sinned. And without even asking for pardon, the man of God says, your sin has been put away from you. That's not fair. What causes Samuel to reject Saul, or more plainly said, God to reject Saul, but Nathan to accept David, or God to accept David? Are you ready? Because in Saul's, amen, admitting that he sinned, he tries to blame his actions on somebody else then take ownership of it for himself. He says, I did all this because I feared the people. He's saying, I sinned, but it was because I had influence of the people. I was afraid, and so I did what I was doing. In other words, Saul's not really taking ownership for his sin. And in the process of doing this, he very quickly, look at the word we just read. He very quickly wants Samuel, the prophet of God, to turn with him to worship God. Follow me. Look at it. We'll look at it. You know why? Here's why. Because Saul wanted to save face. 
Worship is a good cover-up. Worship is a good cover-up. <laughs> Someone say amen. Samuel says, Daddy, no, no, no. We can't do this. Samuel knew. You listening to me? Samuel knew that Saul could not sincerely worship the Lord whenever Saul has rejected that same Lord's word. Because God and His Word, as we've already looked on Wednesday nights, are so seamlessly interconnected. If you've done it to His Word, you've done it to Him. If you've done it to Him, you've done it to His Word. And He's saying, how are we going to turn and worship something you've already rejected? And you're trying to cast that off as being on the people. How can we turn and worship? Because remember, worship basic meaning is bowing down, reverencing, being in awe of the object of what you're worshiping. How can you be in awe of God and yet have no respect for His Word? So we're talking whenever Saul's talking to Samuel about turn with me with worshiping. We're not talking about sincerity here. We're talking about a grand cover-up scheme. Because huh? look at the word of the Lord. Look at the word of the Lord. Look at verse number 30. Here's the true story of his worship revealed. He says, come on. He, he's, he's telling uh, uh, Samuel again. Come on, turn with me and worship with me. Why? He says, honor me. That's what he says to the prophet. He says, honor me before the sight of the elders and Israel. He's saving face, folks. He's saying, turn with me so that everybody will think everything's okay. That's because if I can lift my hands right here, nobody's going to have any suspicion what was done wrong or incorrect or my faltering or my wavering. If I can just clap a hand on a Wednesday night or you maybe just raise it a little bit on a Sunday night, maybe I can save face and everything will be okay. If I just get the man of God, just join me in worship. But be disconnected from that same God's word. So I want you to I want you to worship. I want you to worship alongside me here. It's a facade. It wasn't okay. He wanted the elders in Israel to think that it was okay, but it wasn't okay. Worship was a cover-up for Saul. Samuel finally acquiesced, and he did turn with him, no doubt reluctantly. But that's one of the things mentioned of in our first Chronicles 10 scripture, but also Chronicles scripture. But there was a number two thing that was denoted there. Bible says he died for his transgression or as we see in a state of disobedience not just because of the rejecting of the word but because he asked counsel the Bible says of one with a familiar spirit everyone say amen he wants well, he wanted to inquire, is the word that the scripture used. He wanted to inquire of her. Listen to me. You, said, you might think that I'm crazy right here about what I'm about ready to say, but I've got biblical premise. It should not surprise us that Saul consulted the witch of Endor because back whenever he rejected the word and was wanting 
Samuel to worship with him, Samuel told him that rebellion, that's the rejection of the word. That's what he told him. He said rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So it shouldn't be no surprise that now he's seeking out a witch of Endor. Folks, and I'm not here to use any scare tactics tonight, but I do want us to be aware that disobedience to the word of God is serious business. Because whenever you have a state of disobedience, I'm not talking about just making a mistake here or there, but you practice a lifestyle of disobedience to the word of God, you're turning your life over to other spirits that you don't want to have any doings with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Saul, look at it. Saul, the Bible says, back in, in, in 1 Samuel 14, I believe it is, or, 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 or 1 Samuel chapter number 28, rather, the Bible states of the occurrence of this story there, that Saul inquired, right? Saul inquired of the Lord, but received no answer. Sad thing is, is that Saul, are you listening to me? In Saul's lifetime, from his experience to his death, the sad situation is that Saul normally only called on the Lord when he needed something. It's pinpointed in the life of Saul. Anytime you see him inquiring about God, it's usually because he needed something. As a matter of fact, I preached to you before, back a few years ago, talked about unfinished altars because the Bible says that Saul built an altar, but that word built means he began to build. He, he started to build an altar, but he never finished it. And so the only altar that Saul ever started to build was one that he never finished. David even says, whenever he comes to the kingship, he said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, 1 Chronicles 13, 3. He says, because all the days of Saul, it was not inquired. There's that word again. It was not inquired at. Is everybody all right? I'll go throw a little language at you again. But here's one thing that people may think, man, we got a contradiction on our hand. Because in 1 Samuel 28 and 6, it says Saul inquired of the Lord. But in 1 Chronicles 10, verses 13 through 14, it says Saul inquired not of the Lord. So Bible, which is it? Did he inquire or did he not inquire? We got a contradiction. This whole thing's false. Bless God. Everyone say amen. It's inquire in our English Bibles. But there's two different Hebrew words for inquire in the Hebrew language. Follow me here. Someone all right? They are distinct and they are different. They have different depths of meaning. None of them being translated inquire is a bad translation. It's just that one's more meaningful than the other. In 1 Samuel 28 and 6, where it says that Saul inquired of the Lord, it is the Hebrew word shael, which means he turned to the Lord as a simple asking without much effort being put into the matter. That's the Hebrew. But in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, when it says that Saul did not inquire of the Lord, it is the Hebrew word derash. That means a little something more intensive. It describes, as, it describes this inquiring as an intense searching, looking, inquiring, more detailed ex exploration than a general asking. 
In other words, when it said he didn't inquire of the Lord, it meant he did not search to the depths or inquire to the depths. He wasn't serious or earnest in his inquiry. Let's say it like this. His inquiring of God was more general and superficial. He inquired after God as he would inquire about where's a good place to eat. His inquiry after God was like, you know, do you think this shirt makes me too fat? It was just a general asking, just a general inquiry. Can you tell me how many more miles it is to the next rest stop? Just a general inquiry. But he said whenever it speaks about inquiring after God that he did not do, it says that he did not, he was not earnest, he was not serious, he was not intent, he was not in debt. Someone say amen. But here's the problem. The same word that it said he did not inquire after the Lord, he did inquire after the witch. Are you hearing me? When he went to inquire after the witch, it wasn't a general asking. It was the derash being intent, serious, going to depths about the inquiry. He was willing to give to a witch what he wasn't willing to give to God. He was willing to be earnest and serious about the witch when he wasn't willing to be earnest and serious about God. About God, it's just a Johnny come lately. I wonder if it's gonna be good weather today. A general asking, but when it was the witch, he got down to business. So we don't have a contradiction because when he inquired of the Lord, it was a general one. When it said he didn't, it's that he didn't go to the depths or intents. Someone ain't saying amen. The seeking of God was more superficial. But while he sought the baser things of this life, he was more intent and earnest about it. Let me pose you a question. And let's do it with the Hebrew language. How do you inquire after God in comparison to how you inquire of other things? Are you adamant about your inquiry through God as you are things of this natural world? Or is it just a general asking here but a more in-depth conversation entanglement here? Someone say amen. And so here is a man that's had, and folks, I don't want you to forget this. He's had an experience with God. He has prophesied as the mouthpiece of God. But he dies in disobedience. Largely because of two things. He ignored the word of the Lord. And he never inquired earnestly and sincerely after his relationship with God as he did other things of the natural world. It didn't go beyond the surface level. It didn't rise above God being there to help me whenever I think I'm in need. But folks, the right perspective we need to have is that I'm not just going to God when I'm in need, but I realize as a human being every single day of my living life, I'm in need of an almighty God. When things are well, when they're not well, according to my standards, I still need God. And I need to earnestly and seriously inquire of Him. 
general asking, but a sincere inquiry about God. I'm here, here to speak into the ears of the people that are sitting before me to tell you this. Don't die in disobedience having had an experience in your past. Don't die in disobedience having the spirit and the unction of the Holy One flood over your spirit and your life sometime in the past. Don't let the final word be over your life is that they once knew God. They once had a relationship with God. They once was in church. Good. Don't let those words flow after the ah, ah, over a dead corpse that's in a grave. I remember when they were a part of the church or when they were on fire. Don't die in disobedience when you've had an experience from God. Somebody here tonight needs to make sure they finish strong just as strong as they started they need to finish furthermore let me tell you don't allow worship to become a cover up for you don't allow worship to be a cover up don't allow you being here being a cover up You need to let worship fall from you and flow from you. As though he really is the object of your affection. And really, when you get like that, you'll become like the David. Whenever Michael charges him, said how gloriously foolish was the king today. That uncovered himself, took off that kingly robe, and danced before all of Israel. How you know what he said? He said, This wasn't before Israel. He said, and this wasn't before your daddy. He said, This was unto God. You know what he said? He said, I'm not worried about saving face with man. I know who this worship belongs to. It belongs to God. Yet Saul got everything backwards. He says, I'm worshiping for that everybody would think everything's okay. And he was disconnected from his relationship with God. We gotta get it right. Our worship's not a cover-up for the way that we might not quite be living or some mistake that we made honey we can come in unashamed and just there bear that before God but our worship he must be the object of our affection we gotta do it seriously and earnestly inquire someone say amen John Acuff reference popular classical author of Time Pass, John Steinbeck, book called Canary Row. Spoke about his character in the book Canary Row by the name of Henry. See, Henry, listen to me, Henry was a master shipbuilder. But he never finished a ship. Although he had been working on them for years. At last minute, when he was just about ready or just approaching completion of finishing a ship, Henry would always tear up the boat and start all over again from scratch. Most of his friends thought he was crazy. But one of the other characters in the book understood what was happening. They said, y'all got to understand something. 
Henry loves boats, but he's afraid of the ocean. He likes boats, but suppose he finishes his boat. Once it's finished, people will say, why don't you put that boat in the water? And if he puts the boat in the water, he'll have to go out in the boat. And he hates the water, but he loves to build boats. You see, Henry never finished the boat, so he'd never have to launch it out in the water. Folks, I've seen people like that in my ministry and evangelism and pastoral ministry. They take two steps forward and three steps backward after their initial experience. Progress sometimes is slow, even at times barely measurable. Even sometimes it looks like a digression. But the fact of the matter is this. They are enamored with the fact of going to church, coming to the functions, being there and worshiping and be accounted among the assembly. But they realize that they get too serious that expectations from without and from within and from above is going to challenge them to do some things that are a little bit frightening for them from their present station in life some would say amen they're okay with the boat just not where the boat is supposed to take them They're much more comfortable with the boat on land or the boat next to the shore but one out in the depths of the sea. That's uncharted waters. Can I talk to somebody tonight? God may be trying to urge somebody, prompt somebody to finish the boat so you can launch out into the deep waters where God wants to take you. And if you're having fears concerning that and you're frightened about the success of the journey, don't forget you had a hand in getting the boat ready. Someone say amen. Someone say amen. You understand what I'm saying? He is a master shipbuilder because he's built Boat after boat after boat after boat. But he's never tried it in the water. Because he's afraid of the water. But he likes the boat. But pal, I've met people that get enamored with church life. They like church life. They like to be of church people. They like the conversations. They like the camaraderie. They like all that. But they are fearful about ever finishing or developing in the relationship with God. Because they're afraid of where God may take them. And what that would require of them. And so I'll just settle for constantly making and remaking a boat on the shore so I never have to get in the water. Let me tell you tonight, do not be afraid. Do not be fearful. God wants you to finish, and God wants you to get your boat in the water. God has great exploits for you. God has great vision for you. God has great destiny for you. Don't be remaking the boat over and over again. Go on by faith and step up to what God is calling you to and get in the water. Don't start with an experience and die in disobedience. Uh-huh. Bishop, me and you could have conversations. We, we could go over the past memories of our life and say, there's so-and-so, what are they doing? They're restarting their boat again. 
on the verge of pushing it off into the water. Oh, no, no, we can't do this. This is scary. I don't know what might happen, what might be required. Let's tear this thing down and start over just so that we don't have to go in the water. Listen, I'm not preaching at anybody tonight. I am preaching for you. I want you to finish the same way you started and that's strong. This is not a laissez-faire to take an eternal career of becoming what God wants you to be. Just be what God's called you to be and do what God wants you to do. Finish strong! There's another character in the scripture whose name starts with an S by the name of Samson. Samson is standing between two middle pillars upon which the house and the temple of Dagon rest and stood. Each of his hands is placed upon one of those pillars. His eyes are literally gone. They have taken and plucked his eyes out of his literal head. A lad is leading him anywhere and everywhere he is to go. He's in the arena of the temple of Dagon, and his enemies are making sport of him. Hear me? And in Judges 16, Samson, in the closure of his life, is making a request to God. He says, God, remember me and strengthen me one more time. Remember me, God. And strengthen me one more time. What are you saying, Samson? I want to feel your power on my life before I pass from this one to the next. One more. Someone say amen. What are you saying, Samson? God, I'm saying I don't want to die in disobedience. I want to feel your power. I want to have an experience that I had when I first. I want to finish strong, God. No, 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 no. No, surely not, Brother McGee. Sure, 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 sure. No, no, no. Surely not, Brother McGee. Oh, yeah. Look at it. Look at Samson, Brother Terry. He was born from a barren womb. He's born from a barren womb. He exits the womb with a vow on his life unto the Lord of being a Nazarite. The Bible says all times in the book of Judges that everybody hearing me, that the spirit of the Lord had moved upon him many Times. Someone say amen. He was born to be a judge of Israel. He was born to begin to deliver Israel 
from the Philistines, but in many regards, he had laid in bed with the enemy. What are you saying? I'm saying he started with an experience, but he made some mistakes. Someone hear me? He made some mistakes. Saul started with an experience, and he made some mistakes. Samson had started with the Spirit of the Lord, moving upon him oftentimes, but he made mistakes. But Saul died in disobedience, and Samson is saying, Lord, let me feel your power one more time. In so much, the Bible says, Sister Deborah, that in the moment that he is pushing these pillars aside to bring down the house of Dagon, and he does so. The scripture has this little postscript, Brother Zach, and says that Samson slayed more in his death than he did in his life. Why? Because he wanted to finish strong. Someone hear me? See, the Bible says the whole, you all okay? I'm sorry, I know I'm preaching long, but I knew it was going to be this way. I just didn't tell you. I'm sorry. But whenever Saul was out in battle and his body would later be found upon Mount Gilboa, the Bible says that an archer was so sore wounded, amen, Saul from a distance. And when he seen that he was wounded, this is what Saul told his armor bearer. He said, you go on and slay me because I don't want them to come and make sport of me. And since his armor bearer said, nope, not doing it, Saul fell upon his own sword and took his life. And the Bible says he was made sport of anyway. They cut off his head and they paraded his head throughout town. They took his body and affixed it to the wall of Beshan for all eyes to see. Saul was afraid of being made sport of and he dies in disobedience being made sport of anyway by his enemies. Not only that, the Bible says they came up after Saul was dead and people came up and even stripped. Are you hearing me? They stripped his body. Remember the Amalekite that comes to David? Here's his, here's his bracelet. His body wasn't, he didn't just die, but he was stripped of all his dignity. See, that's what a state of disobedience will do to you. It won't just take your life, it'll strip your life. So he stripped, his body's affixed to the wall. His head is detached from his body. He's paraded around for all to see him in this humiliated state. But when we talk about Samson, that had a good start, made some mistakes, was made sport of by his enemies, he's asking, just let me feel your power and your spirit one more time. What's going on? Saul was more worried about being made sport of his enemies than he was him dying in disobedience. While Samson was more worried about dying and finishing strong than he was being made sport of by his enemies. Oh, that don't mean nothing very, nothing, but yeah, it does. Because some people go through this life worrying what other people, church and unchurched alike, opinion are of them. And they'll regulate their life by the opinions of others. Saul was more worried of what people would think and make sport of him than he was his state of disobedience at the moment in time. 
Samson said, you can do whatever you want to with me. I just want to finish strong. Make support of me all you want. I don't care what you think. I want to finish. The Bible says after he has pushed those pillars down and the house has failed, he's killed more in his death than he has his life. The Bible says that his family comes. I ain't going to hold you much longer. All right? That's consolation for anybody. That his family comes in Judges 16. And they come down and they get... The body of Samson. And they take that body from that location. And they bury him. You listening to me? This is Judges 16 and verse 31. They bury his body between Zorah and Eshtol. They bury his body between Zorah and Eshtol. What's significant about that? I'll tell you what's significant to me about that. That place, that location between Zorah and Eshtol so happens to be the very place where the Bible says the Spirit of God first began to move upon Samson at sundry times. You can read of it in your Bible. Let me find it for you just real quickly. It's in Judges as well. Judges chapter number 13. Judges chapter number 13 and verse number 25. The Bible says, and the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. Speaking of Samson, at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtol. And so whenever you go over to, to chapter number 16 and verse number 31, then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him, that's Samson, and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol, the burying place of Manoah, his father. And he judged Israel 20 years. So they buried the body of Samson in the very same place where the spirit first began to move upon Samson. If I can state it and make it as plain as I can like this, his spiritual birthplace where God began to move upon him in his life became his final resting place. You know what that is? Finishing strong. That's having an experience and saying, let my resting place be where my experience first began. Mistakes riddled his life just as much as Saul. But in the finality of it, he didn't allow it to be a state of disobedience. He says, I want to end this thing strong. I want to feel your power one more time. So stand with me tonight. I'm closing. Finish. Finish strong. Finish strong. Because God didn't send you to start the race. He sent you to finish the race. Collapse over the line if you need to as Aquari did in the Mexico Olympics. Because that would be a stronger finish than not crossing at all. Don't be captivated by the boat. And divorce the boat from its purpose and destiny. Let the exhilaration of your experience lead you into deep waters. Just obey his word. Let your worship be pure. Inquire deeply and search intently after the Lord and all the things of God. Just launch out into the deep.
finish strong. Because the reality is it doesn't matter the mistakes you've made from point A to the finish of your life. You don't have to become a state of disobedience. You can call out to God and say, God, let me feel your power one more time. And let there be a fresh unction of the Spirit upon my life as whenever I first began. If we can close our eyes tonight, sometimes that's all that each of us ever needs sometimes. All of us, we just need times that we just say, Lord, come down and help me just to feel that power and that presence that I felt when I first began. Let that fresh unction of the Spirit fall upon my life. Saul's ending would have been quite different if he wasn't worried about being made sport of, but he was just worried about, you know what? I'm just going to own what I've done, and I'm not going to try to save face with worship. I'm just going to be pure about all this. I sinned. It's nobody else's fault but mine. I rebelled, and yes, I went seeking after something, amen, more intently than I sought after God. If he had just done that, he would have ended well. But he allowed all that to become a state of disobedience. But I'm telling you tonight, you have hope on this side of the grave to finish strong this evening. Finish strong. God that had begun a good work in you the night that you spoke in tongues and you were baptized in Jesus, the, 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 the God that began a good work in you, he wants to perform it against that day. What day? Day of rapture. He wants to perform it against that day. In other words, he wants to finish it. And he wants you to be successful. He wants you to finish strong. These altars are open tonight. And I wish as a church, if we could collectively just find a place to pray and say, God, if we could just be a Samson here tonight. I know there's times that rather than, rather than Lord, being a deliverer for Israel, it seems like I've been in bed with the enemy. But, Lord, I'm asking you, help me to feel that power and that spirit just one more time sweep up on my life. Help me, Lord God, not to end, Lord, in disobedience, but let me to end in the power of the experience of your spirit upon my life. God, I need that. My life may be, it may be, Lord Jesus, just somehow pinhoed. God, with going after the woman of Sharak and going after the, the woman of the Philistines and having Deliah and succumbing to her. But, Lord, in this moment, in this moment, I'm asking God to feel, Lord, that power. The Bible says whenever he was in that place that the hair on his head began to grow back. It had started to grow back. That vow, that Nazarite vow that was given to God, all of that significance was starting to come back. And that strength of the Lord came upon him in that final hour. And he was able to finish, if you will, strong where he had been literally weak. I need you, Lord Jesus, tonight. Brother Mason, I don't, it doesn't matter to me what you play here this evening. Just have something playing, if you will, as we talk to God. Because we got a race that we need to finish. we got a race that we need to finish strong. Sir or ma'am, it's okay if you're just going to stumble over the finish line. It's okay because the Bible says, He that endureth to the end. He that endureth to the end. Does that mean I'm going through something? If you're going to have to endure, you are. That means you might endure some woes and endure some mistakes and endure some fallacies. But he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. Collapse over that line if necessary. But sir or ma'am, finish strong. Cross over, cross over, cross over. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.